energy. We walked around for 35 minutes just in the parking lot looking for this car. The passion. UVM schedules the way they do to get as high a seed as possible in the NCAA tournament and to get as much tournament prep as they can because they're not going to get it from their league. The opinions on all your favorite teams. The organization should be taking care of Matt rather than Matt taking care of the organization. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas Show here on a Tuesday on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Full show again today. We've got a lot of those lately, and I'm loving it because no Red Sox baseball. we got a lot of full shows. Really, Norwich hockey and high school basketball the only things that can really bump us at this point. So full shows from here until April for the most part. So we're up until 7 o'clock. Then it's Jazz with George Thomas, and you all know the rules, Okay. Mariners playoff protocol is enacted again. Okay. The game started at 340. I'm taping it. I watched a little bit of it. Okay. Before the afternoon news service. And I had it on a little bit into the afternoon news service. But I have been detached completely for the last 40 minutes or so. At last check, when I stopped, I knew the Mariners were up four to two. That's all I know. They could be up 10-2. They could be down 10-4 as we speak. I have no idea. I watched the first inning before the afternoon news service started. I had it on in the corner here in the studio. Mariners were up 4 nothing, And then as it got to 4-2, to two, I was like, okay, I, I'm done. Because I'm going to be too nervous to do the show correctly. When they were up 4 nothing, I could just kind of have it on in the background and break my own rule. But no, at 4-2, the game is being taped. I'm going to watch the rest when I get home. So no updates. You all know this. No updates, no tweets, no calls, no spoilers, no nothing. And let's hope the Mariners' 4-2 lead holds up. You can get in for anything but Mariners updates on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. You are locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. And Facebook Live, YouTube Live, and my Twitter account. You can watch the show there as well. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. Somebody just tried to message me, say Mariners are winning. I, I, I don't know if that's a cruel joke. I don't know if that's a spoiler. I just asked for no spoilers. So now I don't know. This is why I, I almost thought about discontinuing the text line for the day. You were all so good, though, on Friday. Thursday? Friday when the Mariners played the Blue Jays. You were all so good that I had I was like, okay, I can trust people. I don't know if this texter is playing a cruel joke and they're really losing. I don't know if they're really winning and now I've had a 40 minutes of the game spoiled for me. I have no idea. No Mariners updates, people. Because if I swear if I go back and see that this joke was a that this text was a cruel joke, People are going to be banned for the text line for life. I threatened that on Friday. You were all so good. But uh, today, apparently, we need a refresher course. The opening thoughts of the Brady Farkas show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. Bob Sosi, voice of the Patriots, he's going to join us here in about 10 minutes. Let me say this. Let me, let's start here. The Brady Farkas show has existed 
for nearly two years. In fact, our two-year anniversary is October 26th. So we're 15 days away from two years on the air. In that nearly two years, I believe that the listeners have probably learned a fair amount about what I'm about as a person, as a fan, and as a host. I'm not into lists. I'm not into rankings. I'm not into low-hanging sports radio fruit. And I'm generally not into conspiracy theories. So I see the conversation going on all over New England about could Bailey Zappi take Mac Jones's job? And multiple outlets are wondering, what would it take for Zappi to take Mac's job? I really don't even want to engage in that. Like, for my money, Mac Jones is the team's quarterback. He deserves to be the quarterback, and when he's healthy enough to play and protect himself, he should be playing. To me, end of discussion. The Zappi discussion doesn't really do anything for me. Bill Belichick was asked about Zappi maybe holding on to the job yesterday on, D, on the EEI in Boston and basically said, I don't want to engage in hypotheticals. I do have one question, right? The, the, the large-scale debate of who should play, Zappi or Mac, doesn't interest me. What does interest me is this one question. Why hasn't Bill Belichick just come out and shut down the speculation and shut down this conversation? Bill Belichick has the power to say Max our guy. When he's ready to play, he'll play. That's it. Instead, he says, I don't want to engage in hypotheticals, leading everybody to believe that there is a route to where Bailey Zappi takes that route and takes the job over. Saying you don't want to engage in hypotheticals is not a vote of confidence for Mac. It is not a guarantee for Mac. My question is, where is that stuff? That's the only part of this that interests me because I seriously don't get it. This is a big-time deviation from what we've seen with Bill Belichick in the past. Do you all remember 2020? Do you remember Cam Newton of 2020? Cam Newton was struggling. He was getting taken out of games. The offense was looking bad. They were under 500. Bill Belichick came out multiple times in that season and shut down the debate. Cam's our guy. Cam's our guy. Cam's our guy. Why is Bill Belichick not doing that now? He's done it before. He has the power to do it, but he won't do it here. That I don't get. To me, it's a it's a no-brainer. Mac Jones should be the quarterback when he's healthy enough to be. Move on, end of discussion. Bill Belichick could say that. He's not saying it. I don't get it. Like, I went back to the archives. October 26, 2020, first day of this show's history, Patriots had gotten blown out by the 49ers. Bill Belichick, right after the game. Well, I mean, Cam's our starting quarterback. I think I said that, so... Patriots blown out and embarrassed on their home field. Cam's our quarterback. Mac can't get that. October 20. Oh, no. Let's see. Uh, this one's October 26th. Yeah, absolutely. Just want to get Stid a little experience here. Cam's our quarterback. Then uh, December 11th, 2020. Hey, great question, Mike. I really glad you asked that. Cam's our quarterback. Okay. So we got October 26, 2020. Cam gets a guarantee. December 11th, Cam gets a guarantee. December 23rd, Cam get, uh, uh, Belichick gets asked about Jared Stidham and Cam. Mike, we're not answering that question every day. We've been through this for a month. 
I totally respect that. I think just with the circumstances changing over the last, um, you know, last couple of days with the playoffs, that's why I asked, is it, is it, is it, is it, I'm going to let you know if we're going to make a change. Okay. Now that was meaner, but basically we're not making a change. Cam's our quarterback. Cam even got the seal of approval on draft night to shut down speculation and conversation going into the off season program. Cam got it when Cam wasn't even playing well. And Mac can't get it now. Why? That's the only part of this that I don't understand. Why can't Mac get the guarantee? Does Bill Belichick really think that Bailey Zappi has played so well that he can supplant Mac Jones? Because I don't. Bailey Zappi did just enough this past week to win, right? He stewarded an offense that was led by a great defense. They kicked five field goals. They were 0 for 4 in the red zone. What exactly did Bailey Zappi do to take the job from Mac? Yeah, he didn't turn it over. He did, but Aguilar dropped it. Like He didn't make an egregious mistake. It's easy to not make egregious mistakes when you're up and your defense is dominating. It's easy to play that way. Can't play that way every week. Mac Jones is the guy. Mac Jones should be the guy. And Mac Jones should be the guy for the rest of the year. And Mac Jones should be the guy next year unless you tell me you can go out and massively upgrade at the position, which is hard to do. I'm no Mac Jones true defender, but I'm a true defender of Mac over Bailey Zappi under these circumstances. And I just want to know why Bill Belichick won't give the guarantee. Cam's gotten it before. Cam got it all season in 2020. Cam got it on the night that Mac was drafted. And Mac can't get it now. I don't get it. I'm going to ask Bob Sosi. I'm not interested in what's happening around the rest of New England where can Bailey Zappi play like – or can Bailey Zappi play over Mac? I'm not interested in that. I am interested in this. Tex says it's different. Cam wasn't injured like Jones is. That's We're talking apples and oranges here because I'm saying when Mac is healthy, Mac should play. And that's all Bill Belichick needs to say to shut down the conversation, right? Whether Mac is injured for one more game, five more games, or eight more games, all Bill Belichick needs to say is when Mac Jones is healthy enough to play, then Mac Jones is our quarterback. And if Mac can't play for a week or two weeks, then so be it. Then roll with Zappy until then. I'm not put. you already know this. I'm not putting Mac Jones out there in harm's way. I'm not playing him until he's healthy. So once he steps on the football field for me, he's going to be ready to play. And all I need to hear from Bill Belichick is that. Max, our guy, we want to make sure he's 100%. When he is, he's back there. Done. End of discussion. Bailey Zappi is our placeholder. We like what he's done. We like his traits. He'll, he'll keep us afloat until Max there. End of discussion. Conversation over. Speculation over. Bill Belichick won't give it. I don't get why. I don't get why. We got Bob Sosi, voice of the Patriots, calling in now. So uh, let's get to Bob here. But uh, let's see. Let's get to Bob music. The old names are gone. Brady takes the snap. Back pedals. Fires left. Catch made by White. Turns to the inside. Dives across the goal line. Touchdown, Patriots. But there's new hope in Foxborough. Stevenson with a great run to the outside.
for the latest on the Patriots, we talk to the voice of the Patriots, Bob Sosi, on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, Bob Sosi, voice of the Patriots, with us every single Tuesday at this time. I'm going to ask him the question that we were just talking about. But, Bob, with us every Tuesday at this time, a reminder, we will have Patriots and Browns coming up on this station on Sunday. Both teams two and three. Old friend Jacoby Brissett is the guy manning the offense for Cleveland. Our coverage begins at 10 a.m. Kickoff is 1 p.m. So, Bob, thank you for being with us. How are you? I'm good, Brady. Good to be with you. Well, I appreciate you being with us. However, before we really get into it, I have to ask you one thing first. You have to make me one promise. As we as we sit here live right now, you know, 545, the Mariners and Astros are currently playing. I am taping the game like it's 1985. I am avoiding in this little hermit bubble all updates, all social media. Please do not give me a Mariners score as we talk right now. I will not give you a Mariners score as we talk right now. Uh, unfortunately, the baseball team that I root for most has been eliminated from the postseason. So I no longer have to worry about <laughs> either <laughs> avoiding the result of the game before I can watch it or you know, uh, planning my entire schedule around watching it. So congratulations on the win over the Blue Jays. Uh, that second game was amazing. And all the best to your Mariners. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks for not spoiling it. It is weird to be in this little hermit kingdom here trying to avoid all human and Internet contact for the uh, the next couple of hours. So let's get to the Patriots. 29 nothing win over the Lions. Like, I'm not surprised that they won. I actually predicted them to win. I think we're all surprised at how they won that game. That felt like a Bill Belichick special to me. Just, just the ability to get Jared Goff uncomfortable and do it early seemed like the difference in the game to me. What did you make of the defensive and coaching performance? Yeah, I thought Mike Reese of ESPN uh, phrased it very well uh, when he said essentially that it was a program affirming or program reinforcing win for the Patriots. And I think in every phase, you had the offense with a third string quarterback, the continued development of Bailey Zappi, not making any critical mistakes on his part. He did uh, throw one interception that really was not on him. It was in and out of the hands of Nelson Aguilar and caught by a diving defensive back. But otherwise, you know, the Patriots offense did what they primarily needed to do against Detroit's defense, which was take care of the ball. Now they still uh, went without a touchdown in the red zone and the offense again, uh, wasn't as productive as you'd like to see finishing drives, not even close to that. Uh, they scored 29 points, as you mentioned, but there were five field goals and only one offensive touchdown in the game. All that being said though, I think, you know, running the ball well, the offensive line played well overall. There were, were very few instances of even pressure on Bailey Zappi. So from that standpoint, good on offense. And then to your point about the defense, not only rattling Jared Goff early and throughout, getting to him with plenty of pressure, but also shutting down TJ Hawkinson, a, a tight end coming off two touchdown catches and a two-point conversion uh, reception a week earlier, 179 yards receiving uh, against the Seattle Seahawks just seven days earlier. The Patriots completely take him out of the game until, you know, one meaningless catch later. Amon Ross St. Brown, week two offensive player of the week in the NFL, a non-factor. Limiting yardage after the catch and after contact. Jamal Williams came in with six touchdowns in the last three games. 
Patriots stuff him on a fourth down and one on the very first series for Detroit, really to set the tone. And the Lions go for six on fourth down. They were eight for 12 going into that game on fourth down. So they were a team that was finishing drives, uh, one of the best red zone offenses in the league, uh, certainly one of the most productive fourth down offenses in the league, and a team that you know, could uh, strike in, with big plays off often from broken or missed tackles with a running back, wide receiver group, and an outstanding tight end. And, and all of them were pretty much eliminated by the Patriots' defense. You know, Bob, I find myself in a, in a mental tug of war over this concept. You've said it. Phil Perry said it to us. I heard Mike Reese say it the other day also, that the Patriots have found their identity. They should be a run-first team and not ask the quarterback to do a ton, kind of like we saw last year. And I'm like, you know what? That probably does work. The Patriots will probably win games doing that. But in my mind... I've seen the ceiling of that offense and the ceiling of that offense is what we saw last year. That doesn't feel like a Super Bowl caliber offense, which is ultimately what I want the Patriots to be. So how do I reconcile my desire for them to kind of go above and beyond with the desire of that? That just might be the smart play here, which is kind of what we've seen the last few weeks. Well, I think I I would disagree uh from the standpoint of terming it, the ceiling of the offense was due to them being a run-oriented team last year. I think it was due to a lot of factors. Uh, number one, just the conservative nature of having a rookie quarterback and trying to protect and protect the ball, some of the play calling, especially in the red zone. Uh, to me, I think the, the, the most glaring problems for the Patriots offensively, really last year and, and, and thus far this season, in addition to turnovers early this season, have been that inability in the red zone. So they got to figure that out. And when you get into the 20, I think, you know, certainly having a good running game shouldn't hurt you. That should actually mm-hmm. help you in those tight spaces. I think with, with the, the, the point that, uh, it needs to be made is that, you know, the drop back passing game deep downfield, which is what we saw a bit of early in the season, without the, the presence of play action, you know, without the physical uh, backs that we saw last year exerting themselves. We saw it, of course, against the Lions with Ramadre Stevenson, uh, particularly in, in the second half. To, to me, that there's a happy medium, but I, I think what you have to look at, Brady, when it comes to running uh, the football. Uh, today you're seeing rushing numbers around the league up the highest i think uh, combined average rushing per game going into week five since 1990 and i think it's the reflection of what we're seeing defenses do we're seeing defenses uh, revert more to cover two the, the the two high safeties inviting teams to run but more than that perhaps it's just the lighter personnel to combat the passing attacks and these spread formations what you're seeing are uh, defenses with Guys who look like safeties and, and uh, you know, they have the measurements of safeties now playing linebacker. Uh, the, the Patriots, of course, have used the big nickel a lot. And even in the linebacker group, you're seeing smaller guys meant to, to defend the pass with speed and space. And I think, you know, the, the, the cycle has now gone back to where teams are saying, okay, we're going to do that. We're going to run the ball. We're going to pot it down your throats when we have to. I mean, I look at the, look at the Chiefs. Uh, Raiders game and even the Chiefs game the week before one of the most dynamic passing attacks in the NFL what got them going was the running attack yeah Rick McKinnon against the Raiders that really got Kansas City on track now you don't abandon the pass and don't become three yards in a cloud of dust but I think you have to find I don't want to say balance because I think that that word sometimes is a misnomer it's not necessarily 50-50 but the Patriots are effective throwing 
off the running game or vice versa, running off the passing game, play action. Uh, again, being able to protect young quarterbacks and not put them in a situation where they're putting the ball at risk and harm's way, particularly with Zappi now. But obviously, I think with Mac Jones, it was a big factor in the limited number of interceptions last year. But it doesn't mean, again, that you know uh, what we saw last year has to be the extent of the offense and the passing attack. You would hope it would um, uh, progress from where they were at the end of last season. I would also say very quickly as I ramble on, I think as much of a factor at the end of of 2021 was the defense. They didn't trust the punt twice. They certainly scored enough points against Buffalo in the home game in the regular season to win it, and they come up with a couple of stops. And, you know, Damian Harris in that game was unstoppable. Now, the second time around uh, for the Patriots, uh, a bit of a different story, of course. They didn't get anything going uh, against the Bills in the playoffs. Bob Sosi, voice of the Patriots. We're going to have the game for you as we do every Sunday coming up this week. Patriots and Browns. That'll be a, uh, a nice game between two run-oriented offenses. And a uh, old friend, Jacoby Brissett. So, Bob, with us every Tuesday here on the Brady Farkas Show. You know, let me – I just – from a from a game day activation standpoint, I was surprised to only see two running backs last week. For a team that is going to be run-oriented, at least last week on the game plan, I was surprised to see only two running backs active. And Ramondre Stevenson did a great job. It didn't end up mattering. But what has happened to a J.J. Taylor or a Pierre Strong or a Kevin Harris? Some of these guys we did we have seen at various points. Why only the two backs? Well, I think J.J. Taylor's been banged up. He's been on the practice squad, and he doesn't show up on the injury report because he's not on the 53-man roster, but he's been dealing with an injury, and, and you know, thus far really hasn't been a candidate to be elevated off the practice squad as a game day activation. Up here, Strong is a guy that they had active uh, early in the season as a kick returner, mm-hmm. almost exclusively. He's played a little bit on special teams, had a handful of special team snaps against Green Bay. And I think the Patriots are a game plan team, and I think those numbers generally shift from week to week. Uh, Ty Montgomery's injury True. really yep. pared the numbers down. And, you know, I think when you look back at them in the past, they've carried as many as four or five running backs on the roster uh, who were on the the 53-man roster. When you go back to the Bolden days and the James White days, along with Jakob Johnson as a fullback, you could, you know, put him in the in the mm-hmm. tight end running back group. Uh, so I think it's, you know, this, I think going into last week, I think it was a, a, a confluence of different factors, you know, starting with, the fact that you know they don't necessarily maybe have the confidence right now, or they didn't go into that game to you know to say Pierre Strong's going to be a big part of our game plan, right, or even a part of our offensive game plan. I think the the, the belief that both Harris and Stevenson can contribute to on third down is part of that as well. But going forward, they're going to have, have to obviously reevaluate because Damon Harris has the hamstring issue and didn't play in the second half, and I don't think that Bill Belichick is, is going to want to run Ramondre Stevenson play him as extensively as he did last week, even though I think he has that ability. It's just Belichick by nature has not really had those kind of backs for a long time, at least going back to Corey Dillon. You know, you, Bob, don't tend to engage in in the sports radio uh, fodder. We talk about that frequently. I tend to try not to live in that space either. So I'm really not interested in the whole, is Zappi going to take Max job storyline that I keep hearing bandied about? But I am curious Bill Belichick in 2020 when Cam Newton was struggling over and over again, Cam's our starter, Cam's our starter, Cam's our starter. He he was you know, just out there with that. Why is he not saying that now about Mac? Again, I'm not really interested in the storyline, but I've noticed Bill say Mac, Cam is our guy, Cam is our guy. And he I, don't just says he, really been, I don't think Bill's really been asked about that, that question directly, has he? 
He was asked on your on, on a radio station we like to not mention. I'm sorry. I'm you. sorry. I, 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 I don't know that Bill's been asked that question. For you. I haven't heard it. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Sorry. Look, I, I think I think you know uh, there are always uh, each each situation is unique. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think the the situation with Matt uh, based on some of the reporting and and uh, I you know have. Uh, tended to, to take everything at face value at this point just because I don't know you know what's happening behind the scenes what Max Cap is 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 thinking what what the Patriots truly you know think of his situation it, to me I think it's it's it, it's a case right now where I think it's pretty clear that Mac Jones is still uh, the number one quarterback Zappy just isn't developed enough to challenge mm-hmm. for that does it mean that this is Max's job for a good uh, you know for for the next three, four or five years. And some, you know, have, I think been a little uh, overzealous in stating the next 10 years, uh, you know, that's still to be determined. Um, but uh, I think also part of it too, I think, I think it was a nod to Cam's tenure. I think there are a lot of factors. I think also Bill appreciated the fact that Newton came in here in late July. Mm-hmm. I was thrown into really a, a, the most unenviable positions for any quarterback, but particularly for him, uh, given the, the kind of offense but he was asked to try to learn and run compared to you know, the kind of offense that really was best suited for him that he'd been in before. I think part of it, too, was just the circumstances, you know, wanting to make sure that, you know, reading the room, the locker room, seeing that, you know, Cam had the su- support of teammates. that was po- He was popular at a time when the Patriots, like everybody else, were going through a difficult period of COVID and this transition away from Brady. I think, I think Bill, in some respects, was just nodding to Cam. And I also think, too, the fact that he had Cam's uh, signed Cam in the first place that late in the offseason was an indication that the Bill didn't have much confidence in Jared Stidham. I think yeah. that, you know, that's part of it. I, I think Bailey Zappi is a, a different story. I, I think they really like this kid's poise, intelligence, composure. I don't know what happened uh, you know, with, with Stidham, uh, where he seemingly fell out of favor because they never really turned to him. Uh, with an opportunity during that 2020 season to kind of write things offensively as much as Cam and the offense struggled down the stretch of that game. So I think, it, again, a lot of factors that are unique. I think it, it's an easy comparison to make. Well, Bill Con continually reinforced, you know, the Cam was his guy. But he also said that, remember, at the outset of training camp in 2021, and the door was open for Mac Jones mm-hmm. to win that job. Bob Sosi, voice of the Patriots. Our coverage is going to begin Sunday at 10 a.m. I'm already looking forward to week six. So Patriots in Cleveland. Uh, from Cleveland, Bob, we appreciate it. We'll talk in seven days. Uh, hey, Brady, uh, do you, oh, the Mariners. Oh, you, no, uh, don't uh, do it. Don't <laughs> do it. So thanks for uh, thanks for uh, metaphorically playing ball with me. And, I right. again, I'm in my little cocoon here. So uh, we'll talk in seven days. The Mariner Moose, is he still around? The Mariner Moose is still around. Don't worry. He survived his ATV crash from 1994 or five, and he's back. All right. Well, go M's. That's right. Go M's for sure. Thank you very much, Bob Sosi. Bob refuses to acknowledge WEEI's presence, so that's why he keeps saying, I'm not sure he's been asked that question. I I haven't heard that. So that's why he does that. He's at 98.5 The Sports Hub. That's the competitor to EEI. So Bob plays party lines, and that's fine. We love Bob. He, his prerogative there uh, is what his prerogative is. But, yes, Bill Belichick was asked if Bailey Zappi could take Mac Jones' job. And I'm just, I, I just still don't get why Bill won't guarantee it. 
I mean, Bob is right. Every situation is different. And maybe Belichick guaranteed Cam being the starter in 2020 because of his locker room popularity or maybe because of his veteran standing or maybe because Stidham wasn't any good behind him. All those are possible. But so what? Like that was then and that I understand those circumstances. But right now I've got a circumstance where I also believe it's clear that Mac Jones is the best answer. Mac Jones is also a popular locker room presence. Mac Jones is also a good leader, is also well-respected. I think he deserves, you know, I think he deserves to hear publicly that, yes, this is my job when I come back. Text says, uh, unnamed texter says, Brady, Belichick once got rid of Drew Bledsoe. What makes you think he won't get rid of Mac? Well, this is a different situation. Drew Bledsoe was older and also expensive, and also not his guy. Mac Jones is his guy. Mac Jones was drafted by Bill. Drew Bledsoe wasn't. Mac Jones was drafted in the first round by Bill, and Bill Belichick is under pressure to prove that his drafts can be good. Robert Kraft has said, our drafts need to be better. It would not be smart if if Bill Belichick said, hey, I think this fourth rounder is better than the guy I drafted in the first round. That would not be good. Drew Bledsoe was more easily replaceable to Bill Belichick. Expensive, older, not his. Mac is younger, cheap, and his. Different situation. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Baseball playoffs continuing today. Divisional series. Red Sox not in it. But we did get some Red Sox news yesterday that starts to paint the picture of their offseason. CBS National News Update. I'm going to mute it. No Mariners scores, everybody. Then we talk Red Sox. That's next. Here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM. Text line. So reach out now at 802-585-3026. This is former NFL wide receiver Keyshawn Johnson, and now we're back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV Radio and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Jazz with George Thomas comes your way at 7 o'clock, so we're on for the next 55 minutes. You'll hear, hear a little bit from former UVM Hoops coach Tom Brennan. Reminder, you can always get all of our interviews and all of our full show content available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for the Brady Farkas Show. Mariners baseball by now probably in about the 6th or the 7th inning. I have no idea. What's happening? So uh, they probably gave the score there on the CBS News. No joke. I sat in here in silence, no headphones on, muted the news entirely, did not hear. Game started at 340. Typically, baseball game, three hours. That would mean it should end at 640. They tend to go a little longer in the playoffs, so I'll say it's probably the sixth or seventh. I'm hoping the Mariners are winning. Fingers are crossed. I knew at one point the Mariners were up four to two. I had the game on through kind of the first half hour of the afternoon news service, and then I was like, I can't focus anymore. So I'm going to be picking it up later in the top of the fourth that the Mariners up 4-2. I hope that they continue to lead the Astros, but I have no idea. With how good that lineup is, there's never a safe lead. So Mariners were up 4 nothing, and the Astros had that pretty quickly. So 
uh, hopefully I'm in a better mood tomorrow with the relief of a Game 1 win, but I have absolutely no idea. Divisional series do begin today. The Red Sox obviously are not in it, but we did get some fun and important financial information regarding the Red Sox. So as we start to try to figure out the pieces for next year's Red Sox team and then the financial components that go with next year's Red Sox, a big piece of all that are the arbitration numbers. Now, I don't want to get way lost in the weeds here, but just run again through what arbitration is. So Major League Baseball players have a rookie contract. When they come to the big leagues, they have a rookie contract and they are guaranteed to be with their team for six years. Unless their team cuts them, they're guaranteed to be with that first team for six years. The first three years, they play at the league minimum. Okay? League minimum dollars, like something like 700000 The next three, they're eligible for raises. And the raises come through arbitration, right? I give a number. The team gives a number. We meet in the middle usually. And that's it. Sometimes it becomes contentious because the team thinks I'm not as good as I think I am, but largely that's the simplicity of it. So Rafael Devers is going through arbitration now. So he is on the Red Sox for next season. The Red Sox own his rights for one more season. He's going to come to at some point over the offseason a dollar value for that one year. He's on the Red Sox. The question is just how much money he's going to make. Well, Your arbitration raises depend on how good you are. Are you in your first year of arbitration, your third year of arbitration, what position you play, et cetera. So there's a lot that goes into it. But the good people at Major League Baseball Trade Rumors, they went out, and they're very good at this. They project what the arbitration-eligible players will be making next year. And it can fluctuate a little bit, but largely they're pretty good. So – Rafael Devers, who will be going into his sixth year, they estimate him to make $16.9 million next year. He made less than that this year. He's an older player. He's a very good player. He had a good year. He was largely healthy. Therefore, he's going to get a good raise. They've got Alex Verdugo making $6.9 million next year. They've got Nick Pavetta making $5.9 million next year. They've got Christian Arroyo making 2.2. They've got Ryan Brazier making 2.3. Abel Monte, 900,000. Franchi Cordero, 1.5 million. Rob Refsnyder, 1.6 million. Josh Taylor, 1.1. Reese McGuire, 1.3. And Yu Chang, 900,000. So there's 11 players arbitration eligible. The Red Sox do not have to hang on to all of them. They can cut any of those players that they want at no financial penalty. So of the 11 players, I think the Red Sox are guaranteed to keep seven of them. Okay, I think they're guaranteed to, to keep seven of them. They're going to keep Devers. They're going to keep Pavetta. They're going to keep Verdugo. They're going to keep Ref Snyder. They're going to keep Arroyo. They're going to keep Josh Taylor, the lefty reliever we didn't see this year, but at $1.1 million, he's worth the risk. And they're going to keep Reese McGuire. That's what I think. I think they're definitely getting rid of, of Almonte, I think they're definitely getting rid of Brazier, and I think they're definitely getting rid of Yu Chang. The one I'm undecided on is Franchi, one and a half million. I actually think they'll keep him around. 
Doesn't mean he's going to be on the major league roster, but organizational depth, good clubhouse guy, well-liked, triple-A call-up potentially, has power. I think they'll keep Franchi. So I've got them keeping eight of 11 players. If they keep the eight that I think, that's about $35 million in salary commitments. Okay, And remember, those are raises. They were already paying guys. So it's really not a huge difference there organizationally in terms of how much money they're going to be paying. Some teams get really freaked out by arbitration, right? Like the Oakland A's, part of the reason they traded Chris Bassett and, and Sean Manaya and Matt Olson at the beginning of the year is that those guys were going into their final years of arbitration, and they were really scared off by guys that were going to make another $2 million or $5 million. The Red Sox don't need to be scared off by that. One, Devers is the only guy really making a significant jump. Pavetta probably too. But, so there's not that much real increase, and the overall commitment isn't a huge amount of money. So you take that $35 million into account. And I think I read that the Red Sox would end up being something like $85 million away from the luxury tax threshold, leaving them plenty of big, plenty of room to make big moves, right? We talked all last off season about labor negotiations and the, the CBT and all that. Well, the collective bargaining tax got, or the competitive balance tax, I should say, it got raised. So the Red Sox basically in their current salary commitments will be about $85 million short of being penalized. That, to me as a fan, reads bada bing. We've got plenty of room to make the big moves we need. And I just can't help myself. I keep coming back to the same thought. The Red Sox need to make multiple big moves, $85 million to play with, right? They can do a ton of stuff. They need to use it. They absolutely need to use it. I, I believe they can turn this around in one offseason. I really do believe that. And they can be playing in this round one year from today, $85 million goes a long way towards helping you get back into relevance and relevance in the contention, right? Brian Bayo and Tristan Casas next year for a full season will absolutely help. But that $85 million, oh, Chris Sale coming back in theory could help. That $85 million you have to play with, you can bring back Bogarts. You can get a frontline starter like Carlos Rodon, who I keep mentioning, like Justin Verlander, who had an unbelievable year, 18-4. and four. Yeah, he gave up four runs so far through what I saw today in the playoffs, but 18-4 and four with a 1-7. Run at him if you want to. Okay, You can get some bullpen help. You can bring in Edwin Diaz if you want to. You can get depth pieces. You can get the bounce-back guys you always go for. Every single bit of it can be done for $85 million. Every single bit of it. The Red Sox need a corner outfielder. Boom, there's Michael Conforto, who I keep advertising for. Hey, boom, there's Mitch Haniger, who's playing for my Mariners. Okay, let's do it. $85 million to play with. There's Xander Bogarts at $30 million a year. Oh, I got $55 million left. I can go get Rodon for twenty-seven. I can go sign Noah Syndergaard if I want a starter. I can go and get Chris Bassett, or I can go get Sean Manaya. And then, oh, by the way, I can make trades also and take on some salary from better players. I can do all of this. 
the arbitration numbers, why should you care, is that it's not a lot of money. Like, that's not cutting into your ability to do things. It's just not. I mean, I've got you keeping eight guys, eight players making $35 million total. That's one-third of your roster making up nowhere near one-third of your payroll. So go out and spend what you have in surplus. I mean, the the Red Sox can do everything we want, and they can be playing next year, this time. This round next year, they can be playing. They just have to attack the offseason, and they need to go after the big names. I am all for prospects and development. You know that. I am all for homegrown players. But you need to now go out with this kind of financial flexibility, and you need to supplement that young core that you're trying to build, supplement it with major league proven and major league ready talent that's ready to win and ready to compete. The thing that is kind of shocking to me is the Red Sox seem fairly likable this year in terms of their players and personality. The amount of fans I hear saying they're okay just bringing back everybody. Like, everybody hated the Red Sox this year, and everybody hated the roster. But yet all I hear is, man, I'm happy to bring him back, Kike. I could see Arroyo. Yeah, you know, I'm actually pretty good with Ref Snyder. Be a great piece. Hey, Rich, uh, Rich Hill's nice. He was good. Michael Waka, I mean, he was, had a great year. Yeah, I'm okay if they bring back Hosmer. Well, you can't bring back everybody. Because if you bring back everybody, you get the same team as last year, and that team wasn't good enough. So you got to move on from some people, and you got to go get some big fish. You don't need to get eight big fish, but you got to go get a couple. Okay, J.D. Martinez is out. I'm moving on from Chang and Almonte. I'm moving on from Rich Hill, and I'm moving on from a couple of bullpen arms. I'm anticipating having seven or eight spots to fill. Seven or eight spots at $85 million, I can do that. I can bring back Bogarts. I can go after Rodon. I can, you know, Adam Frazier is out there, contact second base. Like, I can do a lot of things. The Red Sox can and should be playing. Like, the bargain basement is great. I'm a huge advocate for it. Michael Walker was great for you. John Schreiber was great. You need to find those guys. I've always said that, right? I look at my Mariners, Paul Seawalt, one of the elite relievers in the American League the last two years. Bargain basement scrap heap guy. Good. Okay? Like, you got to find those guys. Justin Turner won back in the day with the Dodgers. Max Muncy with the Dodgers. You have to get those guys. The Yankees getting Jose Trevino. You, they're must-haves. They're must-haves. Homegrown players are must-haves. But you got to have a couple of proven guys, a couple of proven big fish to go and make and, and close up all the loops. And that's what the Red Sox have to do. Look around. Look around baseball. Yankees. Aaron Judge is a developmental player. Luis Severino is a developed player. Some of their prospects, you know, Peraza, who did good things for them, developed player. But they also spent big when it called for it on Garrett Cole. They took on money on Josh Donaldson, and they took a chance on him, but they took on money to get him. They spent big on Araldis Chapman, who may be not great this year, pretty good for the life of his contract, though. They took on money to get Zach Britton. Okay, the Yankees have built it the way the Red Sox should be building it. Look at my Mariners, right? Tons of homegrown players. 
tons of bargain basement guys. But when push came to shove, they spent the money on Robbie Ray. They spent the prospects on Winker, Suarez, and Castillo. They spent prospects on Frazier. They went after proven talent, and they are still playing. The Astros, tons of development, tons of international signings, tons of the bargain flyers. But they spent big on Verlander, and they went after Vasquez, and they went after Mancini, and they went after Granke before all of that. This is what it's done, and the Red Sox need to take that jump. They've got a basis of prospects. They've got some of the homegrown guys. They've got some of the bargain fillers. They need to finish the deal. Trevor Stories, part one. Go out now and get parts two, three, and four, and you should be playing this weekend. You have to pony up at some point. You have to pony up at some point. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Some people are just texting me. Some people just texted the line, great game. Why? Why are we Why are we doing this? I, what does great game mean? I'm, I'm truly taping the game. Like, I'm not, I don't know what's happening. So, if you're trying to ruin it for me, I'm just not going to check the text line anymore. Great game. Ten minutes ago. What does that mean? A great game to me would mean the Mariners are up 12 to 2 at this point. A great game to you probably means the Astros are threatening and the Astros have the bases loaded and two out. There's high drama. And I'm going to go home and see that Jordan Alvarez hit a walk-off grand slam. And I'm going to come in tomorrow and I'm going to be ticked. But what does great game mean? Now I get to play guessing games as to what these text messages mean. On Friday, you all were so good at not giving me any updates. I want no updates. I want zero updates. I am living in this cocoon for a reason. I'm living a great game. What does that even mean? Great game to me means the Mariners are up 15 to 2. And they're throwing mop-up guys and the Astros have used their entire bullpen up. That's great game to me. I don't know what great game is to you. Now I'm irritated. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? Well, they have an expensive but totally unimpressive receiving core. And they have at absolute best, at most charitable, the ninth best quarterback in their own conference. They really said that? Every damn thing is politics and race. And I'm losing my mind over it. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Who's saying what? Brought to you by Vermont Laser Wash. Texter says the Yankees are under a bunch of pressure. Yes, the Yankees are under pressure. That's that's true. We don't know what's going to happen with Aaron Judge. They've got they've got an aging roster in some spots. They've got an expensive roster as always. Yes, the Yankees are under pressure. The Dodgers are under pressure. The the Braves are under no pressure. They won last year. I mean, they got a young core locked up forever. The Yankees and Dodgers are under pressure. I would say. Houston's under a degree of pressure, just in that, you know, they've been to, I want to say, six consecutive American League Championship Series. It might be five, but it might be six. And they've only won the one World Series, and that World Series is in question by people. So I think Houston is in, it has some pressure as well. I'm still ticked by this message that says, great game. The hell does great game even mean? So... I I don't know. Now I'm irritated. But anyways, Vermont Laser Wash sponsors who's saying what, which, yes, now I'm trying to rein myself 
back in. So Vermont Laser Wash is Central Vermont's home of unlimited car washes. It begins at just $20 a month. So unlimited car washes, $20 a month. As you go for uh, go through snow season and sand season and salt season, you're going to want that. But if you want just one free one, it's us now. Just text the word Vermont to the number 30 and then 400. We've talked about the Patriots offense, and we've talked a lot about who's calling the plays, and we talked a lot about Matt Patricia. And I said last week that we needed to give Matt Patricia some credit, that Matt Patricia did a pretty good job against Green Bay. And I think Matt Patricia did a fairly good job against Detroit as well. Well, Greg Bedard of the Boston Sports Journal, not ready to give Matt Patricia any credit for the Patriots offense. For what? <laughs> what? I mean, I know. I, I mean, the, like, I, I mean, look, he did. He did a good job. The, the, the uh, touchdown pass was a great call against. Right. He anticipated cover two. I assume they're a high cover two team in the red zone, and they lost like five defensive backs in a game. Congratulations for your one offensive touchdown in this game against the worst de- defense in the league. So no. All right. So Bedard's not giving him any credit, and I would say this: we in the media, I think it's fairly fairly self-explanatory we in the media can be hard-headed can can be stubborn i think a lot of times we get a thought we get a take and we like to squat on that take and almost nothing is going to change our mind that appears to be what greg bedard is doing it does not need to be like this because for my money you can acknowledge that matt patricia is doing a better job than you thought he would without thinking he's the perfect answer i think i always say this two things can be true at once I don't believe that Matt Patricia is the right answer long-term as a play caller and offensive coordinator for the New England Patriots. However, Matt Patricia is not the tire fire that we all thought that he was going to be. Matt Patricia was never my preferred choice, was never the guy I thought was an offensive guru. He's doing two jobs in one, calling the plays and running the offensive line. That's not ideal. The team was last through the early first three weeks in motion. I thought that, like, that stuff bothers me. I just don't believe that he has the offensive acumen of Sean McVay or Kyle Shanahan, and I wanted the next one of those guys to end up in Foxborough. It's true. But, but, Matt Patricia has been better than I expected, and little by little, the Patriots' offense has gotten more productive and more effective. We've seen the offensive line get better. The offensive line was a huge problem week one against Miami. Bailey Zappi did not even get touched on Sunday against Detroit. Offensive line has been better. That's a group that Patricia is directly working with. To me, he deserves some credit for that. And really, outside of Isaiah Wynn's play, the offensive line's been good for a couple of weeks. And that's a group that Patricia is working with directly. The run game has opened up. The different run schemes have been working, right? They've run inside. They've run outside. They've run zone. They've run power. They've run from shotgun. They've run from under center. All of that falls into Matt Patricia's umbrella. And Matt Castle, former Bats quarterback, agreed with me. He's really bright. And there's nobody that works harder than Matt Patricia. And I always figured out that he, he's going to find a way to make it work. And you can see the evolution of this offense from week one to what happened week two, three, four. Now we're at week five. And you can see there's a rhythm of this game. There's not a lot of procedural issues at the line of scrimmage. They've got the check with me game going. The different types of run scheme that they run with the gap scheme the inside zone the outside zone but marrying the formation with those runs yeah that's high level football talk for matt patricia is doing some nice things here and i do think he deserves to be rewarded for that and i also think he deserves to be rewarded for 
helping usher Bailey Zappi in the last week and a half. It's not easy to work with a third-string quarterback. It's not easy to work with a rookie quarterback. It's not easy to bring a guy up from the practice squad and have him start. It's not like Matt Patricia helped develop a game plan that worked for him, helped communicate the game plan to Zappi. And Matt Patricia, Glover Quinn told us last week, Matt Patricia, not a great communicator when he was in Detroit. Well, Matt Patricia clearly communicated effectively enough with Zappi to, you know, to, to, to make Sunday look like it looked. And as for the struggles in the red zone that Greg Bedard references, they did. They were 0 for 4 in the red zone. I also believe that that's Bill Belichick saying, hey, kid, don't turn it over. That's what that is. I don't think that that's Matt Patricia not being able to call plays in the red zone. I think that's simply, hey, we're, we're up. We're not going to take any chances. Just don't lose us the game. If we got to kick field goals, we'll kick field goals. We'll trust our defense to do the work. That's where I think that that comes from. 100%. That's where I think that that comes from. So uh, one other thing, by the way, that is better than we have given credit for. It's time to acknowledge through five games that the Patriots draft class is pretty good. Right? It's always the popular thing to bag on the Patriots' lack of youth, to rip on the Patriots' lack of draft success. That is always the popular thing. And for a lot of years, it's been true. This year, it's not. We talk about things that are getting better. We talk about things that have proven us wrong. This draft class through five weeks has played well, and it deserves acknowledgement also. Cole Strange, we have not called his name in a negative way most of the year, right? Week one, struggled against Miami. Week two, he's part of that group that mauls Pittsburgh at the end, run the ball, run out the clock, check. He did a good job against Baltimore, did a good job against Detroit, good job against Green Bay. They've run the ball at will for the la- for, for three of the last four weeks. Cole Strange is a part of that. I don't recall any egregious penalties on him. I don't recall him losing his cool. He's played well. We knew he was supposed to be a stabilizing force on the line. He appears to be that. Jack Jones is up for, he's going to be up for defensive rookie of the year if the season ended today. Two picks and a forced fumble in the last two games. Check. Marcus Jones, elite return game in week four. Didn't really have to use him in week five, but elite return game. Guy who's appeared on defense. Zappy, who at least has come in as a third-string quarterback and won a game. And then Tyquan Thornton, who we finally saw the other day. He had two catches, and he came back off injured reserve. Patriots draft class has gotten productivity out of four guys. Strange, Jack Jones, Marcus Jones, and Zappy. And now we see Thornton. Did this Robert Kraft put the pressure on Bill Belichick and said, hey, the draft's got to be better? Thus far, it's been pretty darn good. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. UVM Hoops, out their best player, four to six weeks. How exactly should the Catamounts be learning to play in advance the season opener? Check in with Tom Brennan, former Catamount Hoops coach, with me next on DEV. Think you know sports better than Brady does? Text in with your thoughts at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Ralph on the text line who sold, who said great game writes back and says, uh, don't be so sour, I am watching. 
Ralph, I'm going to be sour. I've asked everybody for a week not to give me Mariners updates. Ralph is a Ralph's over in New York. I love Ralph. Great listener. Has listened to me in multiple stops in my career. Ralph's a diehard Rams fan. Ralph, how about this? When the Rams win the NFC West and get to the divisional round of the playoffs, and you can't watch the game live and tape it, how about I tell you in the third quarter, oh, what a play, and make you wonder what the hell is going on until you can get home. I don't think you'd like it either. Like, hey, you've only been waiting for this movie to come out for 20 years. Hey, before you've ever seen it, oh, my God, can you believe the main character died? Oh, okay. I've been waiting 20 years for this. It's my party, and I'll cry if I want to. I'm going to be sour all I want. Thank you very much. The show is brought to you by Pro Driver Training. That's Pro Driver Training, Vermont's premier truck driver training school. Online at ProDriverCDL.com. Class A, Class B, CDL, passenger advanced skills training, book work, and real-life application of that book work. So, again, ProDriverCDL.com. I want to go back to the UVM basketball story we were talking about yesterday. UVM transfer, the guard out of Bellarmine, Dylan Penn, is out four to six weeks with a broken hand. I had a chance earlier today to catch up with UVM Hoops coach Tom Brennan. We talked for about 10 minutes, and that interview is already up on our podcast channel at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm going to play for you the best five and a half minutes here momentarily. But here's here's what else we know. Coach Brennan was not able to tell us which hand Dylan Penn broke. And that's a big deal. Dylan Penn is left-handed. If it's a shooting hand, bigger deal than his offhand, I would think. So we're not sure which hand still. Coach Brennan was going over to practice this afternoon. Hopefully, by the time we talk next week, obviously he'll have the answer on it. and He'll have a bunch of stuff kind of for us on how the team looks at practice. But he's at practice right now, so I have not gotten an update on which hand for Dylan Penn is broken. I did start out today, and I asked Coach Brennan this question because I brought this point up yesterday. I said, here's my concern. Dylan Penn's out four to six weeks. That's anywhere between zero games and six games missed. Well, the team has been learning how to play with Dylan Penn as their focal point. Now you take that focal point away. What do you do as a coach? I asked Coach Brennan. I say, hey, do you keep playing that way and just know you're playing with kind of the wrong personnel? but you're trying to keep everything else consistent, or do you go and change back to something else that might help you win any games that he's out? That's where I started. I said, Coach, what would you do? I know, I, I would hope the way I would handle this, I think, would be that I would just try to play the exact same way we were going to play with him and, and just – just hope we could get him back as quickly as we can. You know what I mean? In other words, we're not going to throw anything out, uh, not the baby with the bathwater, as they say, because of um, because of this injury. Because it's not an ACL. It's not a, uh, you know, it, it has a limit, you know, or at least we think it does. It will be better on such and such a date. So uh, I'd say we just stay with what we're doing, plug somebody else in his spot, whoever that might be. I don't know. Uh, but in terms of... Um, uh, the way we want to play, the things we try to accomplish, how we're going to go defensively, uh, who's going to guard who. I think those things would all stay, and we would just put an X in where he is. You know, it would be somebody else. But um, And then again, you know, maybe we got Zappy. 
Yeah, there you go. A nice Patriots reference. Um, I think in that case, then I just go with Robin Duncan at the point who plays a similar way as Dylan Penn, right? Not a shooter, not a, not okay, a shooter. Okay, okay, but stop right there. Uh, this is great. I'm glad you said that. Would you have had Dylan Penn at the point? Yes, I would have had. What I would, what I think is going to happen is that Dylan Penn is going to control the ball, and okay. he's going to be the decision maker. And I think they're going to play relatively spread out around him. I think he's going to. So I think he's going to go one-on-one ISO, spread the court, and if he can get to the bucket, then he's going to finish. And when they start dropping three guys in there, he's going to kick to a shooter. Now, Robin is not the finisher that Penn is around the bucket, but he's a bigger guard, so certainly there might be some mismatch issues there that he can create. So maybe he can get to the bucket. If not, he can drive and dish, and I think you just surround him with shooters. That That's what I would do. All right. Well, that's interesting. I have had my boy in the pivot the whole time. I have had him as – a five man that he would be on the block and, and we would kind of rotate around him there and defensively he would guard a big and um, and that's kind of where I saw it. But uh, again, um, one thing about our boy, God bless him, Becker, and I ain't telling tales out of school here. I know I'm not. Uh, you know, offense comes around late. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I've been to three practices so far. I don't see much offense, you know, and God love him. You, you think of how they – how they guard, how well they guard, and how often they just shut people out, and and especially here, how they just don't give up anything here. Um, uh, so I kind of thought, uh, you know, that that would be that would be the way we would go, and that it, it, in other words, he, we're going to play with him on on the block, and not not uh, handling the ball. I'm I'm interested. Why do you think that? Why do you think that he's going to run the show? Because every highlight that I've seen is him starting with the ball at the top of the key and then driving to the bucket and finishing with a wide array of scoop shots and underhand floaters and this, that, and the other. And then I do believe he's going to play on the block. I think you're absolutely right about that. But I see him more as the primary ball handler where where he gets the ball, he goes downhill, bull in a china shop, bullies you to the bucket, draws the foul, gets the contact, and won. And when you finally adjust and and bring help, then there's Finn Sullivan, there's T.J. Hurley, there's Aaron Deloney, and there's the Fiorello, and there's the three ball. That That's what I thought all along. Sounds like a plan, my boy. It went complete. Can you see me lifting my hand right over my head now? <laughs> that's what it did for me. It went right over my head. But I, it, makes, it makes tremendous sense. It does make a lot of sense. I just automatically – figured that he was going to have to be our inside presence and our inside passer but on defense and on offense. Uh, I just didn't see him as, as a, a, a point forward or whatever it might be. I didn't, I didn't see that coming. And uh, one of the reasons I uh, felt that way or feel that way is because we have so many good guards. I love our guards. You know, we have a lot of them. So um, I just kind of assumed it would be four guards in him or three guards and him and Nick or one of these pups that we think has so much potential. Um, but honestly, I did But I'm going to tell you what, my boy, next Tuesday, I'll have some stuff for you because I'm going to practice and I'm going to find out the answer to that question. Now, again, it's moot now because we don't, you know, we don't know. I mean, he broke his hand or whatever it was, but it, he's coming back in a reasonable amount of time. To me, that's exciting. You know, it, it, what's sad is that we have such a tough, schedule in the beginning you know i mean that that's going to make it more difficult for for everybody and most especially him for not having played now at least we know 
that he has played for very, very productive years. He's not a young young in. He knows what's going on. Um, and um, and the idea to get him back as quickly as we possibly can. Now, you know he's going to try to get back as quick as he can because this is it. You know, he want, he's got a lot on the line here. But, um, but I'm interested in the whole concept and the whole theory of how of how we're going to play i find that very interesting and i'm i'm anxious to see if that's exactly what we're going to do all right that was the best five minutes of my talk with coach brennan the full interview we talked more about dylan penn we talked about cam gibson and his role in this program that all available in the full interview again on apple Podcasts and on spotify it is interesting that coach brennan kind of disagreed with me on our assumptions of how dylan penn would be used and i guess as I listen back to it, I feel like we're both right. right. I feel like we're both right. I do believe, I just believe the offense as a whole is going to run through him. I think Dylan Penn is the guy who's going to control the offense. That's the easiest way of seeing it. I do believe he will be the floor general. I do believe that he's going to have his hands on the ball a ton. I think I am right that he will be the point guard who starts with the ball and makes the decisions from outside. I also think Coach Brennan's right, that we will see packages where he is in the post, the ball gets to him, and he makes the decision passing out of the post. He still has the ball in his hands. He's still the leader of the offense. He's just controlling the offense from a different spot. I believe this offense is going to be built entirely around him and his playmaking ability. And maybe he starts with the ball at the top, and breaks you down and gets to the bucket. Maybe he starts at the top, breaks you down, and kicks to the corner. Or maybe Aaron Deloney is the point guard. Maybe Robin Duncan is the point guard, and Penn gets the ball on the post, and then he makes a one-on move there or kicks it out to somebody who's a shooter. It's very clear to me. This team is going to need to be a good shooting team. They were a year ago. They were in the league. They're going to need to be again. Because Dylan Penn is going to be a playmaker and a facilitator, and he's going to find people. He's going to draw a crowd, and you need to be able to make teams pay for doubling and tripling him on the block or once he gets to the paint as you know when he's had the ball in his hands. So I think Coach Brennan and I are both right. I think there's room for both usages of Dylan Penn. And uh, interesting, too, that Coach Brennan says, look, just play the way you're playing. Don't try to change it up. He's not going to be gone long enough for you to kind of yo-yo back and forth among systems. Play like you're playing. Understand you're playing with kind of your B personnel in your A spot, and then just wait for him to come back. Interesting. Interesting. I guess in that case, I could definitely be talked into that. In that case, I'd play Robin Duncan. Similar game in that they're not shooters. Let Robin Duncan facilitate. Let him get to the block, let him get to the hoop, and then let him be the facilitator. He is not the scorer, Dylan Penn is. Dylan Penn can score 18. Robin Duncan can score eight. So it's not the same. But I think I'm probably with Coach that that is better than yo-yoing back and forth among uh, among offensive systems. All right. Brady Farkas Show here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. For all the things that went well for the Patriots on Sunday, one major negative has come out of that game. We'll tell you what that is. Who's going to be out for a bit? We have the answer next on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. 
Welcome back in. Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. All right, a couple minutes away, Jazz with George Thomas comes up here at the top of the hour, so he'll take you through until 9 o'clock, and then Eye on the World with John Batchelor. I'll be on my way to watch the Mariners and see what exactly has transpired. Again, I, st- I, I had it off here at about 4.50. At that point, two hours ago, the Mariners were up 4-2. to two. A couple of you have sent texts in trying to ruin it for me. I don't know exactly what's happened. Mariners could have blown it. They could be in the process of blowing it. They could have run away with it. I have absolutely no idea. So, up 4-2. They were up 4 nothing. We're up 4 nothing. you should win. But I have no idea if they will. To be honest with you, I have very little faith that they will because the Astros, I've seen it too many times. There was a season where the Astros went 17-2 and against the Mariners. 17-2! and I've seen it too many times where Bregman and Altuve and Alvarez just ripped your soul out. So, if that happened... I wouldn't be shocked. We'll find out here again here. I'll start finding out in about an hour when I get home. Patriots got some unwelcome news today. Damian Harris left that game the other day on Sunday, hamstring issue. He's going to miss multiple weeks, it looks like. looks like. That comes from Tom Pelissero of the NFL Network. This is a blow because the Patriots, with Bailey Zappi or with a relatively limited Mac Jones, are going to continue, I would think, to lean on their newfound identity. And their newfound identity is being a punishing running team. And if you don't have Damian Harris, that's a problem. Now, Ramondre Stevenson, I believe, is excellent. And he was excellent on Sunday. But do you want to give him 25, 30 carries a game? I would imagine that's not something Bill Belichick wants to do. Bob Sosi reiterated that to us in the first hour, that I don't think that's on Bill's bingo card nor do I think it should be. I believe that in today's NFL, it is proper to have two good running backs, at least on your roster. And do they all, do they have to get 15 carries and 15 carries? Not necessarily, but I don't think giving Ramondre Stevenson 30 carries for the next several weeks is the best way to go about this, right? You want to keep them fresh for running, receiving blitz, pickup, et cetera. Do you want to wear them out? Probably not. Patriots have a couple of options then. One, they they can do that, right? They can just run Ramondre Stevenson into the ground. It's worked for Derrick Henry. It's worked for Ezekiel Elliott for a period of time. Ramondre Stevenson is young. They could just do that. It wouldn't be my choice, but they could do it. Two, the Patriots can finally start to trust one of their younger backs, right? They drafted Pierre Strong this year. And they drafted Kevin Harris. We really haven't seen much of either of them. Pierre Strong a little bit on special teams. Kevin Harris, I remember seeing in the preseason. I don't even know that he's dressed for a regular season game yet. Somebody else can find that out for me on the text line. But do you want to give one of your younger backs an opportunity to get out here and be the spell? Can Ramondre Stevenson get 18 carries and Pierre Strong 8? Maybe. That's an option. And frankly, that's the option that I'd probably like to see. We talked about the success of the Patriots draft class. Well, these are the guys that haven't done a thing. Can we find something in them also? And the Browns are a bad rush defense. I believe they're last in the NFL right now in certain metrics against the rush. So if you're going to be that, you're going to lean on the run again this week. I'd like to see Pierre Strong get an opportunity. 
really solidify that draft class. That's a possibility. The other possibility is you sign someone off the street. Right? Le'Veon Bell is still out there. Uh, I believe, you know, I, I don't have an, uh, Carlos Hyde. Like some of these, you know, waiver wire type guys are out there. It's not what uh, Alex Collins, I believe, is out there. Like, that's not what I would do especially because Harris isn't out the whole year. It looks like he might not, you know, he might be out a month, might be out less than that. So do I really need to bring in somebody off the street, teach them this, teach them that, only to have them not be relevant in three weeks? Probably not. I think the easiest answer is the in-house answer. I'd go with Kevin Harris or Pierre Strong. I personally would like to see Strong because he was the higher drafted player and a guy that I have a little more excitement about. But the Patriots do have answers here. Or... They can just say, screw it. We'll go back to throwing it all over the yard. Again, I don't think that's the right answer either, especially this week, given the Browns' rushing defense woes, but it is an option. So, screw it. We're throwing it. Screw it. We're letting Ramondre run it. Go sign someone off the street. Bring up one of our practice squad guys. I'd go with the practice squad option. Ty Montgomery still hurt. If he were there, I'd I'd roll with him, but I don't believe he's going to be back this week. We'll continue to monitor his health as well. Brady Farkas show out podcast available, Apple podcasts and Spotify jazz with George Thomas next praying to the baseball gods. Go Mariners. We'll see what happens. I'll talk to you in 22 and a half hours.